All your base are belong to us. And welcome to Fake Geek Girls, a podcast looking at nerdy pop culture from both a fan and critical perspective, encouraging the things we love to do better. I'm Missy. I'm a writer. And like, I am embarrassed to admit this, but the character I identify most with in this show is Otis. And I'm so, so sorry. sorry. I'm so like, it's not in every way. Well, well I'd, I, I'd hope so. I don't think you would do to Ruby what he did to Ruby. No, I wouldn't do a lot of things that Otis does in this show, but fuck, a lot of times I was like... At its core. Yeah, I get it. I get it. I'm Mary, I'm a marketer, and I'm just so happy I got Missy to watch the show. It's so good. I watched it, and I knew knew she would love it, and my only regret is that I didn't get her to watch Euphoria first, because I feel like while they are different... There's enough similarities going on that I feel like you're just not going to be, you're just going to be like, this is really good. But it's not as good as, but it's not as good as sex education. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah. So sex education is a show, is a British show. (laughs) I'm making making a face because it's, it is confusing. Uh, it's put out by Netflix. It began in 2019, which is actually the same year as Euphoria. Um, see? Which, from the perspective of somebody who hasn't watched Euphoria, feels a lot like sex education's like cool, sexy cousin. You know, I would say it's this cool, sexy cousin that ended up in rehab. Yeah, multiple yeah, that's, times. That's that's like what it feels like to me. Maybe a little violent um, too. <laughs> sex education follows a number of students at Moordale Secondary School through their various friendships and sexual and romantic relationships. Uh, the central character Otis, played by Asa Butterfield, Asa Butterfield. I don't actually know how that's said. Um, he is the son of a sex therapist, Jean, played by Gillian Anderson. I. Not to be thirsty right off the bat here, but like Jillian Anderson, the show is the definition of a MILF. Um, I love it because she is. And then I think of her in the other show of which I watched her in, which is The Crown, in which she plays Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. Yeah. Gross. Um, she was great. Uh, Otis is best friends with Eric, played by Shudi Gatwa, um, who is gay and being bullied by Adam, played by Connor Swindells. Holy shit, Connor Swindells can fucking act. Uh, I I need to see them in something else yeah Um, Adam is the headmaster's son Uh, Maeve played by Emma Mackey uh, is a poor very kind of like edgy girl Um, just the coolest yeah Maeve and uh, Maeve starts up a sex therapy clinic for teenagers with Otis who uses information he has learned from his mother with whom he has a somewhat fraught relationship because of her constantly butting into his life and her very clinical way of dealing with conflict. Like, she's not wrong yeah. in the way that she approaches conflict. But, like, when you're aware of what's going on, I'm sure that is infuriating. Yeah. Um. Uh, so Maeve starts up this sex clinic with, uh, with Otis to uh, help his classmates out with issues like maintaining erections, dealing with rumors of STIs, and meeting their partner's needs. Um, there are, of course, a lot of sub- subplots, such as Otis's estranged father and how that impacts his impacts Otis's feelings about himself and sex, Maeve's family issues, Jean's relationship with Jacob, played by Mikael Persbrandt, who apparently was just accused of sexual assault, so that fucking sucks. Um, But the basic gist of the show is that it's about teens and relationships, some of which are sexual and some of which are not. Um, 
so kind of the main thrust of this episode, which I, no pun intended, which I, I didn't intend until I read this one particular essay, is the idea of sex education as a modern rom-com mm-hmm. and like how that shapes the the various events and themes of the show. Um, so this might feel like a weird place to begin, but reading through this essay called Love Through the Ages, Redefining Romance in Sex Education, Wanderlust, and Grace and Frankie, which is by Kimberly Shute, uh, really contextualized some interesting things about the show for me. Uh, I tried to, to describe the show to somebody, like, because I was like, they're like, oh, what's it about? And I was trying to tell them and I was like, oh, it's really hard to give you like a genre here because it's like a comedy and it's not, it's like a sex comedy. It's about sex, but it's not like a sex comedy in the way that like, American Pie is a sex mm-hmm. comedy. Like it's it's kind of hard to explain, um, and sometimes it's really serious, you know. So like there's a, there's it was hard to just identify what it was. No genre is of course mutually like necessarily mutually exclusive. But reading this essay, which positions sex education among several other shows as modern rom coms, really made sense to me. Um, so rom com movies and TV shows have kind of fallen out of fashion, much to my annoyance. I fucking love rom coms. I know, like, same. I love them. Um, generally speaking, a romantic comedy involves the meeting of two people, their separation, and their eventual coming together again to affirm the importance of the relationship, even if the relationship itself doesn't last. Um, according to several people who were interviewed by this pr- for this parade article, which is called Are We in the Midst of a Rom-Com Renaissance? Yes, but here's why the next gen won't and shouldn't look the same, which is by uh, Jessica Sager. There'll be a link to that in the show notes. Um, so according to several interviews for that, a lot of the reason we don't see film rom-coms anymore, meaning like rom-com film. Movies, like Harry Met Sally. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of the reason we don't see that anymore is budget. Um, studios want to make money, so they tend to want big franchise films and award winners. Uh, rom-coms are typically neither. Uh, yeah. And while they, they could be very popular, they don't bring in prestige or blockbuster money. Which makes sense why lately we've been seeing so many pop up on like Netflix. Right. And so many of them are either like just, just not funded well. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like Disney bought up 20th Century Fox and then immediately killed their yeah. budget their mid-budget studio. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. Light? Um, Is it had something to do with light? I can't remember. Hmm. It they they immediately killed that off. That was the company that made like uh the hate you give. Mm-hmm. And that like dramatically throttles the ability of mid-budget movies to be made at all. Yeah. And that's generally where rom-coms fall is in that mid-budget range because you yeah know, they might have star power but they're not going to need a lot of special effects or yeah. location shooting or anything like that yeah um this article also talks about the homogeneity of rom-coms as most of the big ones were about straight white people following very similar plots with a few changes um you might have a protagonist or a love interest of a different race like now and then um you might have a gay best friend you might have some plot elements that differ but for the most part one of the things people wanted from rom-coms was a plot that follows a predictable formula and studios want to make money so they appeal to whatever they see as the ideal audience um of course rom-coms never really went away entirely they're just uh, they're just different you know they've they've kind of changed shape over time i would i would argue that there's more rom-cons for ron rom cons not ron cons um for younger people now than there are older people like and in show form. Oh, in show, yeah, yeah, in show form. Yeah. So you have a lot of one specifically on Netflix. Um, what's the one that just came out? I don't know. <sighs> the one. It's so fucking funny. Anyways, she's <laughs> funny, and the tennis guy narrates for her. 
I have no idea what you're talking and about. Then, and then Gigi Hadid bell- narrates for the other guy in the previous season. It's very good. I need to watch the new season. I can't remember what it's called. Is it Never Have I Ever? Never Have I Ever. Okay. Yes, there's that. And then there's a few others out there. But that one's yeah. particularly really good. Um, So, you know, they never really went away, but things have changed. And the genre hasn't reached the peak it had, both because of limited diversity among, among them until fairly recently, and because they aren't big money maker f- makers for studios. Like, with, a, with some exceptions, like, rom-coms don't make a ton of money and they don't attract a lot of prestige in the form of awards like i would be curious to see how like the classic rom-coms they probably didn't do super well yeah like, big budget movies do like, even though they're classics like really good ones are gonna they'll they'll make money they'll and you know they might get awards mm-hmm. but it's going to be like less than a you know serious drama mm-hmm. or less than a blockbuster mm-hmm. avengers movie or whatever um but they are catching on on streaming services mm-hmm. and TV shows are generally cheaper to make than movies. So we're seeing more of them that way with sex education being one example of what a modern rom-com mm-hmm. might look like. Um, at its most basic level, sex education follows the very traditional rom-com structure. A white boy, Otis, meets a white girl, Maeve, and they have a sort of will-they-won't-they they relationship for a while that's thrown off the rails by a number of problems. There is a gay best friend, there are multiple love triangles, and so on. It it fits the bill, like the basic bill of what a rom-com is, but it also, to me, feels like a growth beyond expectations for rom-coms, um, especially because the TV format gives it the opportunity to flesh out characters who might otherwise just be stock. The gay best friend, like, yes, that defines, like, that is what, uh, what, uh, eric is but it's also just like a super incomplete picture of what eric is the weirdly over sexual girl like yeah that that's lily but it's also like only a sliver of libby libby rather lily jesus lily is a saint uh the too cool for the protagonist but somehow she likes him anyway girl like Maeve is really well developed for someone so smart she is so dumb it's true um the bully like adam uh, in the beginning is very much just a bully and then he's like a sad bully and then like as it goes on he becomes my favorite character (laughs) missy clocked it right away i did (laughs) i was immediately like "Mm." i had it took me the second viewing to actually it's not that i didn't like adam it's just his story was so fucking sad that that watching it the second time it didn't feel as sad like towards the end of it but i watched it so quickly that so much of his story is sad in my head everything was sad yeah and then it didn't end in the best place i would die for adam um (laughs) i'm so sorry he's still bland oh god i love him so much he's still not someone i'd want to hang out with he is my son uh, all of them end up with compelling stories of their own that take them out of stock character status and make them protagonists in their own right. Like every character really does, with the exception of Cal, who we'll talk about later, mm-hmm. um, feels like the protagonist of their own story. And all these stories happen to be interwoven. Um, what works for me about this is that the, the side characters, the stories the side characters experience are every bit as interesting, often more interesting yeah. than what would typically be seen as the primary protagonist story. So like, most of the stories are more interesting than whatever the fuck's going on with Otis. And that doesn't make Otis uninteresting. Like, I think Otis is a really interesting mm-hmm. character and not just because, like, unfortunately, he is the character I find most relatable. But um, 
like his story is genuinely interesting, but so is everybody else's. There's not a character in the show who, when they're on screen, I'm not excited to see what's going to happen. I think it's interesting too, because I think at some point, not through the whole thing, Otis has the issue of, uh, I'm the main character. Yeah. Somehow I forgot to mention Ola in the opening. Oh, Ola. Um, I think he has that issue in which he has to get over and he's literally the main character. So yeah. it's really interesting. He he really has main character syndrome. Yeah. And like he literally is. Um it's it's it was just like it's just a really smart show. Yeah. Uh, so, like, for example, the fact that in season one, Eric has to go through being attacked and suffering this crisis over his identity without Otis is a reflection of Otis being self-absorbed. And it forces Otis to become a better friend. But at the same time, it's not like Otis ditched him entirely to hang out with Maeve. Like, there was a very real issue going on there, which was revenge porn, mm-hmm. right? He was trying to help Ruby, um, you know, stave off this revenge porn attack. Um it doesn't so this conflict between them doesn't make Otis look callous, even as we recognize that he's self-absorbed. Um because he was helping. Like Eric is wronged, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But Otis is not necessarily wrong, right? He needed to be paying more attention to his friend, but like it also makes sense that he was trying to help Ruby mm-hmm. with this revenge porn issue. It just was one of those things of who does he put first? Right. Um, Whether is, he was right or wrong, it's very difficult. Yeah. I think he should have been there for Eric. He should have been her- there for Eric, that's, absolutely. That's what I think. That's my vote. Yeah. It's one of the, it's, I think it's like, he absolutely should have been there for Eric. And I think the fact that he wasn't there for Eric is emblematic of a larger, like, mm-hmm. trend in their friendship. Um, but I also think it was important for him also to engage with this revenge porn mm-hmm. thing, especially with Ruby. Yeah. Um, Eric's story is compelling on its own and it has a full growth arc that contributes to Otis's, which is what makes it so effective because it's as much as it is about Otis being a bad friend, it is also about Eric's like struggle with, you know, his, not his, he's not struggling with his identity. He's struggling with the perception of his identity Mm -hmm. because he ends up getting attacked, um, because he's in drag to go see Hedwig and the Angry Inch and he gets attacked on his way home. Yeah, because his stuff yeah, gets stolen. His stuff gets stolen. He's on his way home and he gets attacked, and um, they seem to mistake him for a trans woman. So he's like experiencing this violent attack that over time, like he meets another gay black man and like sees him as an adult, and that helps him like reconfigure, you know, how he feels. It like he has this whole arc that's independent of mm-hmm. Otis, even though Otis is the catalyst for it. And I think that's something that is refreshing about this kind of TV-based rom-com as opposed to a rom-com film where like if this was a movie, Eric might get attacked, but it would only be about how Otis is a bad friend yeah. and not about Eric. Yeah, and and Eric being attacked it still is so important to the later storyline when he goes to Nigeria. Right. It's like seeing that what he like he can live that life Mm -hmm. and like but and like he saw that with the older man that that came by but seeing it with people his own peers i think was so important and like combining those two it wouldn't have if you didn't have the first it wouldn't have made the the nigeria Mm -hmm. um storyline as impactful i know i was reading the one of the interesting like it really interests me to go to um reddit for uh fandom stuff Mm -hmm. because i feel like reddit is a lot more critical um and so it really interested me the things that people didn't like about season three Mm -hmm. of sex education one of them being eric cheating and i was like i actually i like it 
I liked it. I thought it was really like Eric was getting something out of that interaction that he was not getting from Adam because Adam is so ashamed. Like Adam is still carrying so much shame about his identity, which Mm -hmm. makes sense. Mm -hmm. And we can empathize with that even as we realize that like Eric deserves somebody who isn't ashamed. Yeah. And Eric shouldn't have cheated. But at the same time, like I understand why he did. He was getting something out of that interaction that he was not going to get from Adam. And he doesn't regret it. He doesn't. And, and I, I think that, that was, was brave. That was bold to put in the show. It doesn't like Eric was wrong. And not just because he hurt my dear son, Adam. <laughs> um, but I can I can understand like how that happened with Eric. And it's not because he hates Adam or because he's a bad person or a mean, uncaring person. It's because he needed that affirming space that he's not had before mm-hmm. and know? also he can just make a bad idea he can make a bad choice yeah, it's, yeah um this is a quote from love through the ages redefining romance and sex education wanderlust and grace and frankie by kimberly shoot who writes this is equally monumental for the people watching it you don't really need that part but i included it mm-hmm. um as viewers we are essentially the clients in that bathroom stall exposing secret insecurities and hoping for reassurance it is not a breaking of the fourth wall and the viewer is never directly addressed but it does create deeper identifications with characters than other topics might allow this is a quote within a quote sex education knows the difference between ridiculous and ridicule and the result tends to be richer more nuanced unquote by representing cultural and sexual diversity and a wide range a wide variety of issues for Otis to discuss, the show allows viewers to identify with characters that, had it not been for the sex-related angst they represent, they might never have identified with otherwise. Even if one does not identify with any other presented aspect of a character, whether it be their looks, background, fears, family issues, or hopes for the future, and even if their experiences resemble nothing from one's own life, a character expressing fear that they might be bad at oral sex or wonder about the aesthetics of their intimate parts might still be something one identifies with. This is not a fear or doubt that would have found expression in any other show, and it offers real comfort while it simultaneously affords safety because it is both fiction and humorous. Such intimate knowledge of a character encourages strong identification and emotional involvement. So sex education deals with a number of important subjects, but it does all of this through the language of comedy and more specifically romantic comedy. Um, it rarely feels preachy as no. a result. Oftentimes, I think you mentioned this, it feels gross. Yeah, it does. <laughs> um, there are a few times when I think it leans too hard into being didactic. Like it's a little too, like a little too meeting my eyes through the camera and being like, and that's why you should always communicate. Like I get it, but sometimes, it, you know, it can veer a little too hard. It's a show for teens. I give it some grace. Um But those moments are rarer than you would think for a show like this. Uh, Instead, by having such a diverse range of characters, the show assumes correctly that the audience will have something in common with somebody on the show, whether that's having a lot in common or a little. Like, for example, I have a lot in common with Otis in in, in a way that is annoying. Um, But it's not just Otis, right? I also have Mm -hmm. things in common with Maeve, with Lily. Those are the big three in particular. (laughs) Uh, I never thought about who I relate to most. The the Otis- Amy's in there. Yeah, I the Otis thing was like it was like slapping me in the face. <laughs> uh, it was I just side note. One of my one of my friends the other day was assigning us all what we do in the shadows character, <laughs> and I got assigned Nandor, and that was the biggest slap in the face I've ever had. But it's not wrong. Um, <laughs> that's kind of how I felt about watching Otis. I was like, oh fuck. I would do that. It's uh, even worse because he starts doing really shitty things. I know. I wouldn't do most of those things, but, you know. Um, 
you know, having a lot in common or having a little bit in common, like there, there's, there's a little bit of something I think for everybody in the show. Um, when you identify with these characters, whether because of who they are or the specifics of what they're struggling with, the messages about difference, sexual health, intimacy, and communication can reach you better. Um, and as we see reflected in the show, it's not just teens that need sex and relationship advice <laughs> and healing. Uh, even Jean, who's a sex therapist, struggles to communicate her emotions, her needs, and her desires to Jacob, and her relationship with Remy could be quite dysfunctional. It's quite dysfunctional. Yeah. Um, and the show achieves this not by creating cookie cutter characters who everybody can relate to, which is often the approach, right? Especially with teens. Yeah. It instead creates highly specific characters who, like real people, are shaped by the peculiarities of their lives. So Otis, a teen with lots of knowledge of sex but no practical experience due to trauma, may resonate with someone who is from a radically different demographic. Ola, a pansexual black girl who is surprised by her sexuality, may resonate with somebody for reasons totally unrelated to her race or sexuality. When you tell a highly specific story that feels real based on a character's reactions, perspective, and background, it feels more real even at, even if, as in sex education, the situations are exaggerated, right? Because like, a lot of things that happen in the show are not well, yeah, quote-unquote realistic. It's a show. Yeah, but at the same time, it feels real. It is real for them. Um, I think in the past, rom-com creators and creators of other genres have assumed that the fastest way to make people identify with a story is to appeal to the perceived norm. So straight white cis people. Mm -hmm. um, but rom-coms aren't even necessarily appealing to people who fit that exact demographic, especially because many of them aren't grounded in reality. Sex education has a cast of diverse characters with varied stories, and I think it excels at telling stories that people can identify with, even if they're not from, not a British teen, because the stories are so specific, specific and grounded. Mm -hmm. um, the creators of sex education have been pretty transparent about the fact that they are responding to romantic comedies of the past and are intentional about using the trappings of the genre to both ease viewers into the familiarity of the show and to subvert those expectations to do something fresh with them. So this is another quote from the same essay, Love Through the Ages, by Kim Blueshoot. First, the show takes place in an un unspecified country and town, combining American elements with British ones and a general 80s feel and decor. Creator Laurie Nunn wanted to pay homage to iconic romantic comedies like The Breakfast Club and Pretty in Pink, and this aesthetic is clearly seen in the setting and decor. The students attend an American-like high school where the top athletes play American football and wear Letterman jackets. I never thought about that. I didn't either. Um, but where they also appoint head boys. The, the characters speak with a British accent, and it is specifically mentioned that their country does not have a president. Um, it takes the characters and the viewers out of their routine setting, but it plays into the conventions enough to ensure familiarity and identification. It truly is brilliant. I straight up, like, I forget that football is not a thing. Do they play football? I don't remember football. I can't remember. It's it's. I know it's swimming. The, yeah, Jackson does swimming. I'm not sure about the football, but like, it felt like an American high school to me. And then I remembered yeah. that high school is not like that, that everywhere. Yeah, it's not the same everywhere. I never even thought about it until you brought it up, and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. I guess it's not like that everywhere because I never understand how their school systems actually work. <laughs> yeah. What's college? I don't know. <laughs> What's uni? What's uni? Is that school? Is that, or is that elementary? I don't know. Uni is uh, Neopet. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, the feel of the show, especially with the music and the clothing choices, feels somewhat unstuck in time. Um, I was surprised when the actors first started using cell phones <laughs> because I it felt like the show was meant to take place before cell phones were common. It was like very 70s, 60s. It feels very 70s, 80s, 90s. Yeah. Um, 
but in that feeling especially modern I think the show also gains a sense of timelessness uh, being unable to pinpoint exactly when all of this is happening makes it feel both modern and sort of vintage at the same time mm-hmm. which collapses the story down to something that's always happening not something that's just of the moment um, and the mixture of American high school traditions prom football etc with the British setting again sort of destabilizes our expectations and makes the story like not universal uh, because the US and England are both world powers that dominate through imperialism there are lots of places on earth that don't resemble that lifestyle in any way um, but maybe more digestible <laughs> you know <laughs> um, the differences feel more normalized because you also have the things that are similar to relate to Um the music in the show, too, also tends to be older than you would expect teenagers to be listening to. I did not notice this at all. Really? Yeah. Uh, with the exception of Ezra Furman, who does much of the soundtrack of the show. Um, though it's not necessarily one genre or another, there is a somewhat surprising amount of funk and disco. Yeah. When I when I when when you mentioned that, I was like, oh, there really is. Yeah. They get me. Yeah, I they like truly do. Disco. You like fucking in disco? That's funk. really what it sounded funk. like you said. Funk. I love to fuck to funk. disco. Oh my god. That someone's gonna take that clip. Please don't. <laughs> um and funk and disco are both genres that are commonly derided in popular culture, despite the fact that disco is like hot right now um we simply don't have space to get into the entire history of the disco sex movement and all of the reasons for it but here's just a bit of a primer because it is relevant um disco clubs were popular spaces for sex and drugs that's just a fact of the matter it was everybody was doing it literally and figuratively they were <laughs> doing funk at the disco they fucking at the disco funk club at the disco my hot new band <laughs> my hardcore band <laughs> um disco was associated with both queerness and people of color uh, pop and other artists, like pop artists and other forms of artists, began to integrate elements of disco into their music and were called sellouts for it. This happened with David Bowie. Um, Sellout. Rock and punk scenes in particular had a hatred for disco because of its association with commercialism and as a sort of escapism from the problems of the era. Um, so, you know, all of that going, there, it's much more complicated than that. You can read so much about the history of disco and like, why people respond to it the way that they do. It's actually really interesting. I recommend it. Um, but that leaves us the question, okay, why is there so much funk and disco on the sex education soundtrack? <laughs> because the show is not really about that. Um, this is a quote from The Role of Popular Culture for Queer Teen Identities is Formation in Netflix's Sex Education, which is by Lucia Gloria Vasquez Rodriguez, Francisco Jose Garcia Ramos, and Francisco A. Zurian. Uh, although his defiance to the heteronorm this is about Eric, the his here refers to Eric. Um, although his defiance to the heteronormative and even to the homonormative is most accurately depicted through his outfits, diegetic music still plays a key role in his self-acceptance as gay, as a gay, potentially gender-fluid individual. Disco and funky songs, which constitute a gay male signifier based on its historical existence as a dance subculture dominated by gay men in U.S. cities, are often playing in the background at key moments where Eric performs his queer identity privately and in front of others. For example, Eric Campley dances and twerks to We Got the Funk, a song that gave name to Oakland's 2010 LGBTQI, sorry, LGBTIQ Pride Festival when he tries to persuade Otis to go to a party in uh, episode three of season two. Additionally, when he teaches Ruby how to perform fellatio utilizing a banana in that same party, <laughs> it is the song Take On Me that is playing in the background. Although AHA's song is often categorized as synth pop, its infectious, infectious simple beats and high notes trace a musical lineage that goes back to 1970s disco. 
According to Dyer, disco music built a liberating space in the 1970s for queer men of color because of its, quote, all body eroticism, unquote, repetitive rhythms and, quote unquote, romanticism, allowing gay men to come together in non-homophobic, non-commercial spaces. While some authors consider that nowadays the space has been co-opted, whitewashed and heterosexualized, it is nevertheless true that Eric integrates, quote, the queer experience of disco, unquote, to negate a monolithic phallic gay identity that does not fit his gender fluidity, constructing a subversive sensibility also inscribed in his fashion choices that blend together disco aesthetics and African textiles. For Eric, music is used to contest gender and sexual norms, accommodating, particularly when he is dancing, emotional, physical, and sexual expressions perhaps unavailable to him in other aspects of his daily life. I would, I have a question. Mm -hmm. Knowing all that, what do you think it means that he sucks at playing his instrument? Oh, I think it's so funny. <laughs> I think it's so funny that he's bad at it. It's so bad. It's so funny. After all of that, and then just like, but he can't play that horn. Everything is everything about Eric. Eric's like music is so fun. <laughs> he doesn't get better. I think it's so funny that his name is Tromboner and he doesn't even play the trombone. The French horn is a beautiful instrument. Like it's like honestly one of my favorite instruments to just hear in isolation. And he sucks at it so bad. And it it's so funny to me that he's so bad at the French horn. It's so bad. Oh god, it's good. It's really good. Um, so throughout the show, Eric has some struggles with his identity, uh, usually imposed by others, such as when he's attacked or because of Adam's bullying. Um, but he always returns to this joyful expression of movement when listening to disco. Like to watch him move is a joy itself. He always returns to this joyful expression of movement when listening to disco, which has historically been associated with queerness, with people of color, and of course, the intersection of both. Um, there's a real joy of movement to disco. Like, whether or not, whatever your personal feelings about disco are, mine are extremely positive. Um, I could leave it. Yeah. Um, whatever your personal feelings about disco are like there is a joy of movement to it like it's hard to listen to like a good disco and not be like moving your shoulders a little bit well it's hard to watch eric enjoy it and not be happy about it yeah 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 um and eric's dancing and singing and even getting dressed to disco connects him to that legacy of queerness and its association with disco um by bringing in a genre that has historically been associated with queerness and people of color, sex education is tying itself to that history. Eric doesn't necessarily talk about disco nor ballroom culture, which also comes up in this essay as like connected to Eric. Hmm. Um, but you get the sense through his enjoyment of the diegetic music that he has some awareness of its history. Otherwise, why would he be shown to take so much joy in it? And why would he specifically be listening to it? Though the soundtrack does seem a bit ana anachronistic. What does that word mean? I I love this. You ask me every time. I, I cannot remember. Anachronistic is to be out of time or out okay. of place. Okay. It um, doesn't, like, I'm trying, like, what's the root word there? Uh, Where is that going? Cron is time. Oh, like uh, chrono crusade. Yeah, there you go. And <laughs> Anna, Anna, I think, means, like, maybe, like, against? Like, against summer. Mm -hmm. Anna's against there you go. Anna and Chrono Crusade. Yeah. Anachronistic. Um, so the, the soundtrack does seem a bit anachronistic. I hope I help somebody else now yeah. remember. <laughs> Did you do I need to do diegetic? Do you know that one? Is that uh that's like internal music. Your music that they can listen you're digesting to. Digesting it. Uh no. Diegetic yeah. is music that exists within the thing so like if if a character is listening to a song that's diegetic if if the soundtrack is playing and the characters can't hear it that's non-diegetic oh so it's like a play within a play sure <laughs> <laughs> um so it's happening like the the act is happening 
It's not happening to it. Yeah. So like if I'm listening to a song in a show, like if I am a character in the show mm-hmm. and I can hear the song, that's diegetic music. And okay. it's meant to do something within the scene. It's digesting within the show. Non-diegetic music is for the benefit of the viewer. What is the root word there? I don't know. Damn it. Um, <laughs> I'll look it up. Remind me later. So though the soundtrack does seem a bit anachronistic, not because teens don't listen to older music, but because teens in the show only seem to listen to older music. Um, it seems to be particularly emphasized with regard to Eric and Otis, but Otis's music collection is more eclectic overall. Um, this is another quote from that same essay, The Role of Popular Culture for Queer Teens Identities Formation in Netflix's Sex Education, again, by Lucia Gloria Vasquez Rodriguez, Francisco Jose Garcia Ramos, and Francisco A. Zurian. Um, so this is another quote there. For their first date, Eric takes Raheem to a fancy restaurant, a distinctly heteronormative place where they seem unable to express their attraction freely. So Eric takes him to an arcade where they play a dancing video game to the song What is Love <laughs> immediately before kissing for the first time. Interpreted by a black German singer of Trinidadian ascent, the song's video clip was originally presented as an interracial vampire story that alludes to an implicit connection between vampirism and a form of disease. I'm yeah. sorry. I'm sorry. Have you not seen this video? It's they they use the clip from the show. No, 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 no. Oh, okay, no. The video, the video is is in the show. Oh, okay. I I, I completely misunderstood that, and I thought that the the clip from the show was taken as a way. To- no, 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 no. <laughs> the song's video clip was originally presented as an interracial vampire story that alludes to an implicit connection okay. between vampirism and a form of diseased yet irresistible sexuality. A message only intelligible for those whose queer sexuality may also be seen as perverse. Okay. Musicals are so important for Eric that it is Raheem's dislike for them that ultimately marks their incompatibility. Raheem's cultural references are very different from Eric's much more queer tastes. Raheem loves Pablo Neruda, same, while Eric enjoys camp musicals, same. Uh, (laughs) However, when Eric invites Adam to the school's play, it is clear that despite his more macho performance, he can enjoy musicals, asking if the show will be like Frozen, a film he watched despite deeming it sad, hinting at a mutual love for corny musicals as a queer side of effective compatibility. Also loves the Kardashians. I would die for Adam. (laughs) I can't say this enough um there are a few things to unpack here with regard to the use of music on the show the first is the use of what is love in the in the arcade scene where Raheem and Eric kiss for the first time in the music video uh Hadaway effectively recreates a key scene from Dracula in which Jonathan Harker is attracted to three monstrous vampire women in this, this case wild the vampires are sexy white women and the Jonathan figure is a black man uh they dance around a lot and it seems more sexual than frightening but the sexual attraction is part of the Dracula scene too um, I haven't read any analysis of this video, and that seemed a bit out of the scope. I of have not outline. seen this video. You haven't seen this no. video? Well, it's a banger. I'll watch um, it when I get home. But I think the interpretation of it as something about attractive but frightening sexuality is really interesting as something that might be legible for queer viewers. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, despite the fact that I grew up in the 90s and therefore heard this song roughly one million times, <laughs> um, I associate it most with a dance party. And I talked about this in, I think, our last What We've Been Up To. I associate it most with a dance party held at the end of a Prop 8 protest, mm-hmm. which would have banned same-gender marriage in California. So it is inextricable from queerness in my mind, even though there's no real meat to support that, like, right off the bat. Um, forever, that song to me will be dancing at the end of a protest for queer rights. Um, You've queered the song. Yeah. Second, I really appreciate that the show just picks a range of queer identities. Eric is not necessarily stereotypical, especially because he's black. The, like, you know, gay best friend trope is usually white. 
Um, but he does fall quite a bit into the camp gay best friend role to Otis. Many rom-coms would leave it there. Eric might get a partner, but probably not well fleshed out. Mm -hmm. Here we have not only Eric and Raheem, but also Adam, Lily, Ola, and Anwar to showcase a range of queer identities rather than pigeonholing them into the same likes and dislikes. I also think it's really nice that Otis can um, like show physical affection yeah. for Eric. And it does. it's not like, oh, no. You get the sense that despite the... like. They are very, very good friends. Yeah. And that's it. And I think that's important yeah. to have people be friends of the same gender <laughs> and one of them is attracted to that gender. Well, and, like, and and uh Otis can go do things like dress up for Hedwig. Yeah. And and like just get really excited to see Eric. And like mm -hmm. I just noticed it we're rewatching it. Like the physical the physicality between them mm -hmm. is something that like there's no fear there, but it also they're still they're still clearly friends. There's I mean I'm sure people ship it. Yeah. But um people will ship anything. They'll ship anything. But I just thought it was nice. <laughs> yeah, there's no there's Otis is not in any way emasculated by his friendship with Eric. No. Their physical closeness Anything they like probably that. sleep together in a bed. Yeah. It it literally it reminds me of our friendship. Yeah. In that like to an outsider knowing that one of us is queer, like you could read our friendship as like having romantic in fact people did. Yep. Um my family, they didn't know about that you're queer yeah. though. But it was really nice though. It was it was very supportive. Yeah, it was very supportive. It was yeah. it was very much like don't hide it from us. Yeah, but no, it, we're just really good friends. We're just really good friends. <laughs> I mean, that's what happens after so many years, so many things. Um, and we're just the same person. So yeah, exactly the same. Um so that's a joke. We are not. No. Uh Rahim is very soft and literary and cool. Eric's tastes are flamboyant and fun. Adam doesn't know what the fuck is going Adam. on. And so and so on. Um, but by having this range of queer identities, the show makes space for Eric as an individual, despite him being a character that you could read as stereotypical in other contexts. Um, he does like musicals, but Raheem doesn't. And Adam could conceivably like musicals, even if his only point of reference is frozen. Um, they can bond over that, right? Like mm -hmm. Eric now has a wealth of things to introduce Adam to. Um, and it's important to note too, that these interests aren't mutually exclusive. Adam believes that Eric doesn't like poetry, presumably because Eric and Raheem didn't work out, but he does. And it's mm -hmm. important to Eric that Adam understands that he does like poetry. This kind of transitions to the way that the show subverts expectations of rom-coms and arguably even queers them sometimes. And I'll get more into that in a little bit. Um, this connection to the past through music is just one part of what the series is doing to connect to the history of rom-coms. Rom uh, in fact, I think there's an intentional approach to the genre that is at times subversive or even queering in the academic sense. Other times it's simply reimagining. So just for definitions here, these mean related but different things. So to subvert is to undermine the power of something, right? To queer is to look at something through a lens that makes it strange, especially with regard to sexual identity or gender. And to reimagine is to imagine something in a new way. So you can subvert queer and reimagine something all at the same time, but you aren't necessarily doing all of them. You can you can queer without subverting. You can reimagine without queering, etc. But you cannot do all. You can do all. Oh, I thought you said you couldn't do all. No, you can. You can you do can all. You can do all of them, but you aren't necessarily doing all of them every okay. single time. Um, there are references to rom-coms we're familiar with. I'm pretty sure there are explicit references to Say Anything with mm -hmm. the boombox. 
Um, and the idea of Jackson singing a song to woo Maeve is just very teenage rom-com in general. I loved that. I, I And I was so happy that she's like, okay, I guess I like this. Yeah. Like, fuck you, Otis. Yeah. Um, but, but by being more inclusive and very deliberately so, uh, than previous generations of the genre, sex education is actually fundamentally reimagining the genre, sometimes through subversion, such as by Otis having some seriously toxic behavior toward the girl he likes, the girls that he likes, despite being the typical sensitive nice guy protagonist. That's subversion, right? Um, and sometimes through queering, such as the Romeo and Juliet musical at the end of season <laughs> two. Um, this is another quote from that first essay, Love Through the Ages, Redefining Romance and Sex Education, blah, 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 by Kimberly Shute. We don't need the other two things that are quoted there. Um, Where changing gender roles and values are causing confusion, misunderstandings, and even violence, it is important to have a show that attaches value to open conversation, where rejection is commonplace, and where men as well as women openly help each other through their sexual shortcomings and misadventures. This is a quote. How often have we seen romantic sexual guys who respect what what both they and the other person want while still being written as masculine, fully formed characters, almost never, unquote. But the male characters in sex education are not divided into good guys and bad guys. They are all young men trying to figure out romance and sex by leaning on what they have been taught, and they all make mistakes along the way. This is specifically about men in the series, but I think it's also about the series as a whole. We rarely see rom-coms where open conversation is valued. Um, in fact, miscommunication or failure to communicate is at the heart of a huge amount of rom-coms. It's so much so that I remember um, finding out, like, literally within this year of being like, people don't like that. That's a trope. Mm-hmm. Miscommunication is a trope. And people don't like it and actively don't consume it. And I'm like, how? Yeah. How, how are you going How? And then I learned, like, yeah, I got to find those, too, because sometimes I need those. But, like, I just assumed it's in everything. Yeah. Um, so, we, we, you know, we rarely see rom-coms where open conversation is valued, where rejection is common. This isn't universal, but if you put every rom-com in a blender, you'd end up in a, with a smoothie where most people end up happily paired off. Um, thus far, this isn't true of sex education, where people have feelings at the wrong time or break up because the feelings faded, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, I appreciate and, that. Yeah. And where growth through conversation is both ongoing and never ending. Uh, even though by season three, the sex clinic is no longer in operation for a variety of reasons, um, you still see the sharing of information and empathy through a variety of means, including the more traditional therapist-patient relationship of Jean and Amy, as well as through Otis's more ad hoc advice to classmates. And even through things like Cal speaking to Jackson, who then speaks to Viv, mm-hmm. right? Like there, there is still this sharing of information and empathy, even outside of the like semi-formal system of the sex clinic oh viv oh viv (laughs) i have feelings on viv yeah if viv was not fat her story would have been different yeah um i think men in rom-coms are allowed to be a little more sensitive and empathetic than men in our culture as a whole in no small part i'm sure because rom-coms are primarily targeted at women and are therefore less threatening to masculinity. Uh, but even so, you still end up with some depicts and depictions of toxic ideas, especially things like pursuing someone after they've said no, being controlling, flirting by being an asshole, etc. Um, I think sex, sex education largely addresses these issues head on. Otis's conversation with the kid who won't take no for an answer, for example. Um, this is another quote from Love Through the Ages by Kim Blue Shoot. It would be easy to portray Liam, that's him, as a creepy boy who refuses to take no for an answer. However, Liam does not mean harm. He is sincerely confused as to whether declarations of love are appropriate and when no actually means no. Like many, Liam was taught that perseverance is romantic and no could also mean yes. This is a genuine topic in today's society and many studies have shown that there is a significant link between the films people watch and their romantic interactions and expectations. 
In this hashtag me too era, much is being written about the glorification of dangerous and unhealthy behavior in romance fiction. The romanticizing of stalking, obsession, violence, or predatory behavior leads to problems for men as well. Anna North says, said about this quote, boys learn at a young age from pop culture. They're, they're, older their elders and their peers that it's normal to have a to have to convince a woman to have sex and that repeated small violations of her boundaries are an acceptable way to do so perhaps even the only way unquote and this is why we must never let men know about dark romance (laughs) they'll be like this is what women want i shall kidnap her um sex education responding to the language of rom-coms by pointing out that things don't work like that in real life while also itself being a depiction of very dramatic and extrapolated (laughs) real life is just really it was really effective for me i didn't actually finish that sentence so i'm gonna assume that's what i meant uh again this quote focuses on men but i think people of all genders are affected by the messages in rom-coms we've talked a lot about like how affected people are by things Mm -hmm. especially in our twilight episodes but like this is not this is not a case of it's not zero sum right there's always there can be an effect it just doesn't necessarily correlate to like i watched a rom-com and now i want a man to pursue me forever Mm -hmm. like that's not really let's hope not no for my sake (laughs) um if love only looks one way, so white, straight, cis, able-bodied, sometimes toxic, how do we imagine outside of that, especially if we don't have real-world examples to look to? I think sex education does a fairly good job of giving young audiences of all genders something else to look toward. Maeve doesn't put up with Otis, Otis's or Isaac's toxic behavior, even though she cares about both of them. Uh, Eric expresses to Adam that he's not okay with Adam's shame about their relationship, but is willing to forgive him and be patient when he needs it. There are lots of different kinds of relationships, and they are all treated with gravity and meaning, most of which give us an alternative to what we expect from a rom-com. Another quote here from The Role of Popular Culture in Queer Teen Identities' Formation in Netflix's Sex Education by (laughs) Lucia Gloria. These are some long titles you got here. uh, Francisco Jose Garcia Ramos and Francisco Azurian. Um, In this sense, Lily's musical adaptation of Romeo and Juliet is one of the queerest instances featured in the show, considering that normality, norm, or normativity are social constructs that privilege certain aesthetics, images, and lifestyles over others, and that transgressing them can be both artistically enlightening and sexually liberating. As Taylor explains, quote, music has been associated with sexual allure, gender inversion, and suspect sexuality, unquote, in a manner that reflects both the way both musicals and diegetic disco music act in the show as, quote, an expression, an expressive mechanism of gender and sexual sign- signification capable of arousing and channeling sexual urges and desires, unquote. One of the things I really love about the play in the show, which is the end of season two. I love everything. Yeah. One of the things I really love is that there seems to be little or no pushback to it on the part of the teacher or the students themselves. Um, They are absolutely okay with performing this deeply weird and sexual interpretation of Shakespeare. Um, Either opposition to it wasn't notable enough to be shown or this group is okay with playing these sexual roles. We know that there's embarrassment about sexuality among the characters, as that is the premise of the show. Um, But there's a remarkable openness to the act of queering this rather heterosexual historical play. Um, And like that has historical basis as well. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of reasons that like, for example, men played female roles in Romeo and Juliet Mm -hmm. that had to do with the time period. But there's a historical precedent for for that like yeah. you know queering even though it wasn't queering at the time it was you know it's it's very conf- it's very um it doesn't line up exactly but like 
queering Romeo and Juliet, if you look retrospectively at Romeo and Juliet, is not as is not as far on a literal level as you would expect it to be. It's not something silly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this play was silly. The, yes. Uh, Lily takes it out of Verona and into outer space. <laughs> she has the characters all performing sexualized dance numbers and cod pieces and low cut outfits and so on. It's truly a masterpiece. Yeah. It really is a masterpiece. Yeah. It is deeply weird and maybe nonsensical, but I think in retaining the basic premise of Romeo and Juliet with all these subversive changes, I think you do to some degree end up queering it. Um, it's also notable that while shame over sexuality does exist, no- most notably, I would say in Adam, um, it's not usually the source of bullying, which I think feeds back into the reason the play is agreed to. Eric is bullied, but primarily because he got a boner at school. That's where Tom <laughs> Boner comes from. Um, when Adam returns to school while dating Eric, some people make fun of him and he lashes out violently. But later in that same episode, when he somebody says, what are you, a poofter now? He says, yeah, I am a bit of a poofter now. Um, people who seem who seemed like bullies say it's cool and they congratulate him. Wasn't um, that the kid that got stoned all the time that Amy was dating? That was Adam. Was that was no, Adam? No, after Adam, she did no, Adam didn't get stoned all the time. This guy was like always like he was on the floor. I thought that was Adam. No. She they broke up and then she started dating some guy that was constantly stoned. Oh. Um I don't know who it was. I think that was him. Um I don't think that it's not that homophobia doesn't exist in this universe. It does, or characters wouldn't feel shame and confusion over their sexualities. But I think that among the students, it's not that big of a deal. I think there's just a disconnect of like, this is fun. And like, this is something like, I have to show my significant other my orgasm face. Yeah. Like, that's different than being like, I'm dressing up as a vagina. Yeah. Um, bullying Adam about being bisexual is, I think, more about how much shit he put people like Eric through than it is actually about Adam's sexuality, which, again, does not erase the fact that homophobia exists in this universe. But I feel like there's a bit of just desserts when it comes to bullying Adam. Yeah. Um, I don't think we can go so far as to say the show is expressing an idea of queer normativity, but I think it is a step in that direction more so than your average rom-com. Um... This is a quote from Representation of New Masculinities in the Netflix TV series Sex Education, which is by Julia Lagar Crespi, who writes, um, Despite living in an open atmosphere and having a mother that works as a sex therapist, Otis's masculinity is perceived as fragile by the other students of his high school. Masculinity is often portrayed as, quote, inherently toxic, powerful, and damaging to both women and men, unquote, but frequently is claimed to be, quote, fragile, under siege, and in urgent need of reclamation. Unquote. Recent research done by some scholars from the University of New York shows that, quote, the precariousness of manhood can create anxiety among males who feel that they are failing to meet cultural standards of masculinity, unquote, and in particular, those who are not fulfilling the male stereotypes claimed by society. Moreover, quote, the emergence of heterosexual masculinities that appear to move away from hegemonic practices may be seen as a response to new expectations that men be more sensitive and aware of their feelings, unquote. Dr. Jean Milburn, Otis's mother, is a well-known, quote, sex and relationship therapist, unquote, and performs a controlling and persuasive attitude towards sex, uh, causing discomfort in many situations. So we do see stereotypical ideas of masculinity in this series. I would say most notably with Adam, Adam's Mm -hmm. father, uh, Remy, Otis, and Jacob. Um, Yes. None of these characters are entirely bad people, right? Especially, like, the the biggest one is Mr. Groff, who I hated, Mm -hmm. and then... 
and, and then, and and then, then like, oh, and then he made the salad. And then he made that salad, <laughs> and he found out Mexican food's good. Oh, that boy. Um, but they, you know, none of these characters are entirely bad people, but they all struggle with traits that are not masculine enough, and I think they overcompensate trying to mm-hmm. address whatever part of it is it is in themselves that doesn't feel masculine mm-hmm. enough. Adam lashes out with violence and bullying when he feels inadequate as a man, hence his response to Amy breaking up with him and his bullying of Eric, which stems from his attraction and likely jealousy over Eric's perceived freedom to express himself. And then him just exposing himself to everybody. Oh, God. Adam, you... So stupid. You you idiot baby. Um, uh, Where am I? Adam's father is a hot fucking mess, which we learn as we see more of his upbringing and how the impacts of that trickled down to Adam. Did you notice? Not to veer us off that there is a sister in the family photo oh interesting in and in in the groff family Hmm. it's never mentioned i'm sure it was just one of those things like well never mentioned it so we won't again but there is a sister that's how i feel about ola's sister yeah it's essentially (laughs) like that who are these sisters (laughs) the sisters that never were yeah um Remy is practically an MRA, even though he doesn't, he doesn't believe in what he's peddling, but no. like he still does it. He gets the ladies that way. Mm-hmm. Um, Otis is largely sensitive and doesn't buy into toxic masculinity until he feels hurt. His treatment of Ola and Maeve at his party is peak toxic masculinity oh. because he's nasty to both of them for no reason other than that he feels slighted by them. And Jacob, while an overwhelmingly kind man, is threatened by therapy and Jean's sexual freedom. Um, he's held back by stereotypical ideas of hiding his feelings and this very strict idea of monogamy. And it's like really disappointing because you're like, Jacob, you were doing so well. What did he think he was getting into? I seriously, I mean, I think that's the fact that both of them like didn't have conversations about like children. Yeah. Like really basic relationship stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, they understand the children because she's older. It's much harder to get pregnant when you're older. Um, but like it rewatching it with their relationship, I left being much more upset with Yaka because it just kind of felt like he was humoring her for so long. Yeah. Oh, your silly little job. Yeah. Your silly little job. Like, you don't need a hammer and nails to do it. It's okay. You're, you know, it's not, I don't think he was like, a woman, you're, you're just a woman. Mm-hmm. But it, it kind of felt that way of like, that's a woman's job. Yeah. And it's, and it doesn't matter in the end. Well, and it can, I think it feels that way, but I don't think that's necessarily the issue mm-hmm. because when you learn more about like what, happened when his wife died mm-hmm. and he just like compartmentalized those feelings and didn't grieve at all he's a real feel he has a real yeah. fear of emotion mm-hmm. and so of course he's going to look at her profession and be like that isn't real get over we it. Need it yeah we don't, nobody needs that yeah um in fact he needs it very yeah. deeply <laughs> very very bad um i think it's important to note that most of these men are to some degree likable uh adam's father and remy are questionable uh, remy I never got there. No, I didn't. Adam's dad, um, he made that salad, and I was like, good for you. Good for you, buddy. So glad your ex-wife did not take you back, though. Yeah, for real. Um, But you can at least can see why other people might care for them to some degree. Um, None of them are good men or bad men. They're not criminals. They're not rapists, murderers, or anything like that. We can empathize with them. And this, in my opinion, works against what happens in a lot of rom-coms where there is a good man who cares and does the right things Mm -hmm. and a bad man who doesn't care and does bad things but fakes being good or whatever to 
stock characters in rom-coms. Yes, yes. Um, but not make... Because, like, it would be easy to say, like, oh, Remy was the bad man and Jakob is the good man. But that's not really... It's not really it. Um, by not making any of the characters totally good or totally bad, instead of feeling righteous when they do something we disagree with, we feel things like disappointment or frustration, right? Like, I feel frustrated with Jakob. Yes. I'm like, hey, you... What? I feel frustrated with Remy when he's like actually opens up and then he sleeps with the with the girl yeah. with the um yep person. Yeah. I will say that this isn't unique to the male characters either. Maeve's mother is a really good example. I desperately wanted her to have not been using drugs at the end of season two, but she was. And importantly, Maeve keeps trying to reach out to her, likely because she feels some degree of guilt over calling the police, Mm. um, but also because she wants better for her sister, for for her, no, sorry, not for her sister. Well, she doesn't want better for Elsie, her sister, but she also wants better for her mother. Yeah. Um, That was the girl in the Golden Compass. She She's one of the they're not pirates. I don't know why that's what came. Egyptians. To- yeah, she's oh. the she's the main girl that helps. Oh, me. you're right. Yeah. Um. Also, just really briefly, Adam became one of my favorite characters because while he is very much the teen bully stereotype, and further, he's the repressed gay bully stereotype. He's also depicted with so much nuance, especially on the part of the actor. Yeah. Like I, his acting so fucking good. How does um, he look so much like I don't know his father? they even make the same faces. It's wild. Um, it would be easy to be annoyed at the direction Adam's story takes, especially his romance with Eric. Like Otis is wrong about a lot of things, but his hesitancy about Eric dating Adam is totally founded. Mm-hmm. Um Absolutely. That's how I felt. Yeah. But because we see so much of Adam that Eric and Otis don't see, we also know that Otis is wrong about him. We want better things for Adam, who we know is in an immense amount of emotional pain. We disagree with him. uh, You know, we disagree with the things that he does and how he lashes out. But we can understand why he does those things and how he's trying to fix them. He's clearly in a battle with toxic masculinity. And sometimes the toxic masculinity wins. But you see the fight take place and the growth that he's undergone Mm -hmm. over the course of the series. Like He does grow, while a little, a lot for Adam. Yeah. Honestly, even the fact that he keeps throwing himself under the bus as a means to show he's not a bad guy smacks of toxic masculinity. so hard. What he does is toxic masculinity. Like, he's trying to get away from it, but, like, continually throwing yourself under the bus Trying to be the good hero guy. Mm -hmm. Like, just be nice, dude. Yeah. Like, say what you feel. You don't have to pretend to have thrown a piece of shit out the bus window to show that you don't bear any ill will toward Raheem. You can just be fucking nice. You know? (laughs) Oh, man. That was another example of that's just gross. It is really gross. It's just gross. Um, This is another quote from Love Through the Ages by Kimberly Shute. Another example can be found in the second pivotal scene in which Maeve tells Otis how she feels about the notion of happily ever after. This is a quote from the show. You know, in rom-coms, when the guy finally realizes he's in love with the girl and he turns up with a boombox outside her house, blasting her favorite song and everyone in the audience swoons. Yeah, that makes me sick. (laughs) This scene is important because it sets the scene for the love triangle of Otis, Jackson and Maeve by both criticizing and honoring the romantic comedy's conventions. Otis is in love with Maeve, Maeve but Maeve and Jackson, not knowing about Otis's crush confide in him about their sex life the convention that one character is presented as the foil to the hero is directly addressed as well as the convention that the good guy always does the right thing one would suspect the show wants the viewer to root for otis but jackson is an equally suitable guy i rooted for jackson i did too i rooted for jackson i did too it is jackson who genuinely says that mave may be the one although he is mocked for it by otis (laughs) otis is a little shit (laughs) 
Um, he's right about a lot of things with regard to communication and relationships, but his behavior is shitty. And I think that's wonderful. Yeah. It's nice, especially for like a teen. It wouldn't feel real. No. Um, it also speaks to some of what we see with Jean. She's overly involved in Otis's life, even though of all people, she should know better. Yeah. Um, but But isn't that like a stereotype? Like, I think it is. Psychiatrist kids are the most messed up. Yeah. Um, but as this quote points out, it's notable that Otis is Otis is our primary protagonist, but does some awful things to the people in his life because he's still a teenage boy. Um, though season one was clearly setting up Otis and Maeve, I ended up rooting more for Maeve and Jackson because they yep. seem to like each other so much. Jackson really, really liked Maeve. Yeah. And it wasn't just the gimmick of like, she's the bad girl. No. He really liked he really her. He liked her. Ugh. Um, it killed me when she left. Yeah. Uh, even though their relationship did come a, dumb, did come to a logical conclusion of, you know, they break up, it doesn't work out. But like, you can totally see why they got together. Um, instead of being a story about a nice boy who just hasn't met the right girl yet or the nice girl hasn't noticed him yet, this is a story about a boy who is pretty fucking normal. <laughs> He's nice and understanding in many ways, but deeply flawed in others. He and Maeve both have growing up to do before they're ready for each other, if they even end up together at all, given the direction of season three. Um, what I appreciate about this is it's the kind of subversion that isn't saying rom-coms are garbage and this is better. Mm -hmm. It's looking at the problems with the rom-com genre and massaging them out towards something more realistic and nuanced. Uh, It's, it's perfect. Yeah. It's, it's, it does feel like the next progression of not just rom-coms, but sex coms. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Um, because I think the show does work as a rom-com. It's one that's, it's just one that's genre savvy and aware of how we look at these genres in retrospect. It's imagining what the genre could look like now rather than implying it never should have existed at all. Um, so now I want to talk about sex positivity, nuance, and the teen audience. Um, Imagine that. Yeah. Rom-coms are many things, but I would not say that they are instructional or informative. Definitely not. Um, sex education or realistic yeah sex education takes its title very literally Um, and I think people of all ages the teen audience included can learn something from it Uh, but first I want to talk about about how sex in all its forms is depicted on the show Uh, I know a lot of people have strong feelings about what's appropriate to expose teens to which is fair Um, but I think the show does a really good job of demystifying sex and depicting it honestly Um, the sex itself seems realistic, but not necessarily titillating. Definitely. Um, I mean, maybe I feel that way because they're teens. Yeah. But I definitely felt like, no, like, this is not like... It is not glorified sex. Yeah. It is probably what most people's sex looks like. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that depictions of orgasm, etc. are suggested rather than depicted, such as at the end of season one when... Otis finally has an orgasm and like floats off the bed, um, which is, oh, wait, I went back a little bit. Um, or when they are depicted, it is not usually sexy, such as Olivia's faces or yes. Otis literally ejaculating on the window. I Like that's one of those things, the window scene that will never leave me and I'm upset about it. <laughs> it's very funny, but I didn't need to see it. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't. It's just I didn't need to see I. Yes, I'm glad it's that. I didn't need to see it. I wish I could have fast forwarded through that part. Oh, my God. Instead of making sex this impossible thing to chase after, the show is honest about it being messy and weird and awkward rather than perfect. Uh, It can also be fun and wonderful. But if you zoom way out of the feelings, sex is just kind of silly. Like, it's just kind of a silly thing that people do. 
Um, and because our culture emphasizes it as this huge important thing, it feels even more necessary to chase it. Uh, by showing that sex can be pleasurable, but also weird and difficult to navigate, I think the show does a good job of pointing to it as, yes, something that many people want, but it's not necessarily something that needs to be rushed toward. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's okay to take your time, which is effectively what Otis tells someone at some point. Yeah. Some people are having a lot of sex, but most people aren't having any, right? Like, yeah. Especially in high school. Um, sex is an important thing that happens in the show, but it's secondary to the more important thing, which is honest conversation. Mm-hmm. At every turn, like sh- intimacy as well. Yeah, intimacy. Uh, at every turn, the show enforces that communication is the foundation for good sex. Um, not technique, as shown with Otis's oh, clock God. technique. Not penis size, as shown with Adam, but conversation. It's a rom-com tradition to have conflict built on mis- miscommunication, but I think the show does a good job of pointing toward effective communication as a solution before the problem starts, right? It's not, oh, you fucked up, now fix it. It's yeah. like, if we just communicate better, a lot of problems would be avoided in the first place. Um, so when it comes to what's appropriate for teenagers, I think the mixture of a sort of like, haha, that's a butt depiction uh, that with awkward sex and loving sex resulting from communication is really effective. Yeah, I that, agree. That said, of course, what works for some audiences may not work for all of them. Some well, young- they're wrong. <laughs> some young people aren't ready for sex scenes. Some people don't want to see them at any stage, etc. Uh, I think that the show has a good approach depicting sex, but it may not work for every audience, and that's fine. Um, Was it specifically made for teens? That is my like understanding of it. It seems like a teen show. Because I see this, I see this question a lot with like Euphoria, and to me, that show is not made for teens. Mm-hmm. But I know that there are some people who believe that it is, and just like just because there are teens, and it doesn't mean it's for teens. And I question this one too, because there is so much sex, yeah, in it, and like graphic at times, not I mean, in the way Skins most is the same way, yeah, which, which was for teens, not as graphic though. No one's coming on the fucking window. <laughs> I think it was a little more taboo to like show literally yeah come. yeah um i mean i was shocked the first time i saw it come in a mo- like a regular movie yeah it's just it's just i who are they making the show for and i don't say that like as like a, a a bad thing i'm just curious i think it's for teens but there are engaging storylines for adults as well yeah i i just wonder if that was even a question for who it was for yeah i think it's for teens the the way that they talk about things and like the the relatability of it, mm-hmm. I think, is geared toward a teenage audience more so than an adult yeah. audience. Interesting. Um, uh, you can't make a good show that appeals to everybody on Earth. I just happen to think this one's pretty good at it. Um, this is another quote from Love Through the Ages by Kimberly Shute. This is actually a quote within a quote. This is a quoted in situation. <laughs> Uh, Grinnan and Paul reason that vulgarity is liberating. This is a quote from Grinnan and Paul. Uh, Laughter breaks down restraint. As a result, sexuality is closely allied to the grotesque, even though the grotesque is usually at odds with romance. This paradox becomes a pivotal point for contemporary romantic comedy. Um, So this super short secondhand quote, I think, is really important to understanding why you do this with a comedic approach rather than a serious one. Mm -hmm. um, Of course, nobody really likes to be lectured at. Um, but sex in our culture is this weird mixture of shameful and tantalizing that tends to cause uncomfortable laughter. That's just that's just like any time that someone says sixty nine in yep. any high school ele- not hope oh God hope not elementary school uh, middle school. It's still funny. It's I'm still 30, funny. I'm thirty three years old. Um, 
Yeah. So to approach sex as something that is already going to make you laugh with humor is really smart, I think. You know you're going to be vulgar and you know the audience is teens and adults, but it is a show about teens. Um, So you lean into the vulgarity and the nasty details because the audience is going to be uncomfortably laughing anyway. You might as well embrace it. Yeah. Lean in. Yeah. But while there are jokes, the jokes are not around the struggles people are having, or at least they don't end that way. For example, Adam's experiment with Viagra in the first episode. You're kind of like, Adam, really? And it's like funny. What did he think was going to happen? I don't know. It's funny, but like the end of the joke is not laughing at Adam, right? It's not like, oh, Adam is so stupid. It's like... This is a funny situation. Adam, god damn it. Um, They're about the ridiculousness of sex itself, the weird little details, the absurdity of it. Otis's brief masturbation problem itself isn't all that funny, especially doing it in the car. That's not really funny, but it is also kind of funny. <laughs> um, But him ejaculating on the window is very funny. That Ugh. is... That is extremely funny. It's gross. It's off-putting. It's awful. Even worse is mom walks it's up. So it's awful. so awful. It's so awful. But I think it's also so funny. Like, it's like the worst possible <laughs> The worst. Like, the only thing where it could be, be filmed. And it was because we're watching it. <laughs> I can't imagine acting in this show. These kids are brave. They are. Um, That's why someone had to leave. Like, can't do it I anymore. can't do this anymore. <laughs> Uh, I think overall the show does a good job of balancing the necessity of humor with the serious conversations and making the right things jokes and the right things serious. Um, The show really emphasizes the need to talk about things, including the fact that all of these characters are carrying around some type of trauma. Uh, And the fact that it doesn't always look the same way, right? Otis is clearly affected by Remy cheating on Jean and how sex ruined their relationship, which causes his aversion to masturbation. Honestly, my biggest gripe with the show is how quickly that's resolved. Like, I really was hoping that was going to be picked up again. But no, he's fucking all the time now. Um, Amy is the victim of sexual assault, but reads to others as totally fine. Uh, It's not until a full season later, quite a lot of time passed in both the show and in real life, that she finally gets talked into seeking help because she doesn't really see her trauma as trauma. It's so good. It I is. love that storyline. I do too. Um, I think it's one of those ones where it was so relatable because it didn't seem like it's not something so graphic. Right. Um, but it was still sexual assault. Yeah. Um, and I think they handled it really well. Yeah, I agree. Um, even Adam's father is affected by things from his past, which shape how he thinks about himself and his relationship with his son. Excuses aren't made for anybody's behavior because they are treated as people who make decisions. You can learn, just learn to empathize with them too. Like Adam's father, who's, I'm so sorry. I can't remember his name. Um, he is not, I don't forgive him for his horrible treatment of Adam, his horrible treatment of his wife. Like, I don't forgive him for that. But when you learn more about his backstory, you're like, Oh, I see why you act that way. I now believe you can get better. Yeah, exactly. He's not constructed as an irredeemable villain. He's constructed as a flawed person, just like Mm -hmm. everybody else in the show. Uh, And I find that really, really effective. And that's one of the things I really liked about it was the show's ability to make me care about people who I'd previously found to be so off-putting. So much caring. Yeah. There's so much caring and so upsetting when you find out people won't be back. I know. I'm really upset with the teachers. I know. I love them. I would watch a show of just them. Is it just... It's the two. Oh, I thought... I thought... 
I hadn't heard anything about the guy. I'd heard Miss Sands wasn't. Going I to thought be back. both of them, but maybe I'm just thinking it's both. I love her though. I know I do. She's too. She's great. She's wonderful. Yeah. Especially when she's like trying to like tell the kids like, no, this is wrong. Here, you can go find. You can go find more information <laughs> about here. Yeah, that whole the ending storyline was so. That was the only irredeemable character to me is Hope, and I would fight her in single combat on the street. It was really difficult for me. Yeah, because <laughs> what she says like in the end of like my body won't do the one thing I wanted to do. I was like, yeah, me too, bitch. Yeah. I'm still not an asshole. Yeah. Oh, God. I would fight her. Single She's combat. so awful. Yeah. So awful. Ugh. I hate that woman. I hate, I hated that I had to relate to her. Yeah. That's the worst. <laughs> um, But yeah, that the entire ending storyline with regard to Hope and her trying to clean up the image of the school and like the way that the students rebel, I thought was lovely. I the song, the mm-hmm. song, mm-hmm. it was perfection. Yeah, it was great. Um, the whole presentation, yeah, everything. The like Viv fighting to the end and then being like, "Fuck it, mm-hmm. fuck you." It was perfection. Yeah, so so, so good. So good. The last thing I want to talk about is Cal. And the reason I want to talk about Cal in isolation is beca- is partly because I had I had really positive feelings about Cal, aside from the fact that they don't get to be a character in the same way that the other characters are characters. Um, but when I went on the sex education subreddit, because I was looking for something, I saw a lot of people who really didn't like Cal um, and found their storyline annoying. Or, uh, and especially the conclusion to their relationship with Jackson, they, people were saying like, it doesn't make sense um, that Jack, like it just, it felt forced. Um, I feel like it would have felt forced the opposite way. Yeah. Especially when Cal is like, we are indifferent. Like, I'm not, I'm not. I am good with who I am. I'm not going to sit here and wait for you to like try Mm -hmm. and figure out your sexuality or what it means to you. I'm not there. Yeah. (laughs) So I think that it is totally fair to critique Cal as a character who is mostly there to serve other people's storylines, even characters with less screen time, like the other non-binary person at the school. Like Cal's only other interaction, I swear to God, with somebody who isn't Jackson is to help that character on their journey. I think so. Um, so like and hope. Yeah. It, so that was really frustrating to me was the lack of connection that Cal had to most other people on the show. Yeah. Um, but I did find their relationship with Jackson to be really nuanced and important. Um, and I think a lot of the, what the put, not the pushback, but like the, the dislike of the, the ending of the relationship was people who are maybe more socially aware than the characters in the show and growing frustrated at the show for not depicting a perfect relationship with a queer person. So for context, if you haven't watched in a while, Cal is non-binary. They're introduced in season three. Um, and there's a lot to do with hope trying to force them to wear different uniforms or uniforms that fit in a way tighter yeah a way that's uncomfortable for uh for cal um cal also befriends jackson um who is kind of the stereo not really stereotypical but like he's He's a typical dude he's just a guy he's just a guy he has he has anxiety and he has some recurring trauma issues with like him injuring his own hand 
um, to avoid but he's swimming. still a guy. But he's still he's still just a guy. A guy you like? Yeah. No, Jackson's really really. I likeable. love Jackson. So Cal and Jackson end up um, really good friends, and then it starts to become romantic. And they have this conversation at one point where, well, Jackson, when they're kind of kissing each other, he keeps reaching for like for their chest. Yeah. Um, and. They point out to him, like, if you are in a relationship with me, this is a queer relationship. You need to understand that. Mm-hmm. And Jackson is kind of struck by that. Like, that may not fit with his image of himself. Like, he doesn't think of himself as a queer person. So what does it mean to be in a queer relationship for him? Um, and the reason that it strikes him is something that Cal calls out, which is that he doesn't think of them as non-binary. Mm-hmm. He thinks of them as a woman. That's why he keeps reaching for their chest. Mm-hmm. He he wants to please them as he would please a woman. Um, and so eventually it doesn't work out between them because Jackson isn't either isn't attracted to the idea of a non-binary person or hasn't yet let go of the concept of the gender binary itself. Mm-hmm. I think that's really nuanced. I do too. And I think it was I think it was handled really well. And I I don't think the thing is, I don't think that I think some people's resistance to it was the idea that now Jackson is queer phobic. No. And I don't think that's I don't think that's what it is. I think that Jackson is ignorant about what it means to be non-binary. And I think there's a I think there's respect for Cal of like, you're right. And that's a me problem. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. I thought that that was I thought that that was really effective and um enlightening for people because like a lot of people want to read non-binary people as like gender light like Mm -hmm. um if you are you know non-binary assigned woman at birth like a lot of people read that as woman light which is precisely what jackson was doing Mm -hmm. like he's like oh they're not a woman but but they kind of are a woman i see they're womanly features yeah yeah he was he was reading you know he was reading cal as like well they're okay they're non-binary i can respect the pronouns but like it's more than that yeah he wasn't getting he wasn't getting the complexity of gender um which like he's a cis dude i'm not super surprised depicting that honestly i thought was really good you don't Mm -hmm. often like see that kind of thing and again i don't think that the show demonizes jackson for this even as i am like again a little disappointed in him like i'm like jackson buddy use your words you know if you're with a non-binary person ask what they like Mm -hmm. you know don't just go reaching for the chest but that's the thing is they'll never jackson will never see them Mm -hmm. as non-binary yeah so there doesn't need to be a conversation well he has to get over it is that i think it's totally this is the thing this is the thing for me um we want hard and fast categories for sexuality yeah like we want heterosexual we want homosexual Mm -hmm. we want bisexual right we want because it's easier to think of that to think of it that way Mm -hmm. we want there to be you know two genders so it's easy to say which one we're attracted to when non-binary people enter the conversation straightness gets a little shaky it's no it's true so i really liked this i liked this storyline because it made me really think of like 
I am straight. Would I date a non-binary person? I don't know. I've never been put in that position, but I can't say I wouldn't. Mm -hmm. Would I date a trans man? Yes, because I think trans men are men and I'm straight. Mm -hmm. But would that put me in a queer relationship? Mm -hmm. It made me think about these things. And I think that for me, at least, it was questions I never thought about. I never asked myself. And I think were really important for me to understand not just gender, but like my friends better. Yeah. I think. Like the idea of heterosexuality, hetero means different. So you can be straight and attracted to somebody of a different gender. And to me, that includes non-binary people because they're a different gender than you. Uh That includes binary trans people because they're a different gender than you. Like if you're a woman talking about, you know, trans men, that makes sense to me because hetero meaning different trans men and non-binary people are a different gender. Uh Um, but not everybody sees it that way because they're still stuck in the gender binary. And so, and like this is, you know, we live in, in a society in which the gender binary is normative. Like that's kind of what we're steeped in. It's either or that's not the case in reality, but that is how, you know, that is how our culture talks about gender and it, that is changing, but it, that's kind of what the majority of us were raised in. Um, to have this conversation and to, push Jackson into this uncomfortable territory of like, but I'm not queer. But if I'm in a queer relationship, does that make me queer? Like, how am I feeling about Cal? Like, Mm -hmm. am I What does that say about me? Yeah. Am I thinking about Cal as a woman? Like, and clearly he is. Um, So, I don't know. I found that to be really, really effective. I think the bigger problem with Cal as a character is that Cal isn't really allowed to be a character. They're always there to assist Jackson in his journey toward enlightenment or whatever. I agree, yeah. Um, Or as an opposition to hope and that kind of stuff. Like, Cal just doesn't have a lot of connections to other people. And that was kind of... And, like, so much of their story is only about being non-binary. Like, Mm -hmm. they don't seem to have a whole lot of interests other than being non-binary and, like, smoking which is <laughs> like i think they like to skate they like to skate they don't do that much of it they yeah. mostly hang out with jackson <laughs> they mostly hang out with jackson and viv when viv is there yeah um so like that is something i would have liked to see expanded upon but i actually thought the the relationship between jackson and cal was really nuanced and uh effective in making jackson and by extension people who identify with jackson think about the relationship they have to gender and the gender binary and, you know, physical attraction. Um, I hope that that continues in the next season because mm-hmm. I like it. Like I said, I, and again, this is my interpret interpretation of heterosexuality as a person who is not heterosexual. Um, hetero means different. I think you can still, you can be straight and be in a queer relationship at the same time. That's what I came up with. Yeah. I think that me dating somebody who is a trans man does not make me no. I'm still straight. Yeah, of course. So that's what I came up with. But it was something I never thought about. And even dating a non-binary person, again, different different gender. You're in a queer relationship. I personally, my interpretation, still see that as heterosexual. Um, but that's a compl- it's a complex thing, right? And I think that's something a lot of people don't think about until they're confronted with it. And that's exactly what we're seeing in the show is Jackson being confronted with it. Mm-hmm. I think I hope that it gets gets explored more deeply in the following season. 
um, and that we see kind of more of what that journey looks like for Jackson yeah. because I uh, personally, of course, I would love to see it work out for them. I hope so. Um, I would love to see Jackson realize, oh, I am wrong in thinking about you as a woman because you're not. And the more I think about it, the more I realize that I'm wrong and that I am attracted to you and I'm attracted to the things about you that are not necessarily related to your gender. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of direction I would like to see. I don't know if that's going to happen, but that is, you know, kind of my my hope for season four and with relation to Cal and Jackson. Okay, so we talked we talked a lot about heterosexual desire because we're talking about Jackson and his attraction to Cal. Um, but Jackson is straight. Painfully. Painfully straight. Just like me. <laughs> um, so it hasn't really come up in the show as far as like, uh, the attraction of a queer person to a non-binary person, especially when you're looking at, um, this is kind of a fraught term to use, but it's complicated. Just bear with me as I use <laughs> this word that has sometimes fraught connotations. Um, for a monosexual queer person, meaning a queer person who is attracted to like one gender, such as a lesbian or a gay man. Again, it's a fraught term. Please don't at me. <laughs> Um, the reason I bring this up is because I think that it does not invalidate queerness for a person like a lesbian or a gay man to also be attracted to non-binary people. When I was talking about straight people, I said, you know, heterosexual means different. To be attracted to somebody of a different sex does not make you no longer straight because you are attracted to somebody of a different gender, right? Like it's, it's hetero. It's different. Um, homo means same. Um, so by my logic there, it would sound like I'm like, I assume that if you're not, if you're attracted to strictly women, for example, uh, but you're also attracted to a non-binary person, um, that you, that now you're suddenly bisexual. I don't think that's true because I think that, and, and this is like really me talking about my personal feelings about language and the way that we describe our sexualities. First of all, I think we like uh, on a general level we kind of know that sexuality is a spectrum at this point right mm-hmm. like um people may fall on different places on the spectrum even at different points in their life um your romantic and your sexual attraction can be distinct from one another like you are sexually attracted to people of all genders but only romantically attracted to one whatever it it's gets, everywhere it, yeah it gets very complicated you know we can't always say definitively one thing or the other but when it comes to attraction um I think because of what I said earlier, it's going to sound like, oh, well, if you're attracted to a non-binary person, but you've always thought of yourself as a lesbian, then you're actually bisexual. I don't think that. Because the thing to me is that these terms, especially homo and heterosexual, were devised before there was a more common understanding of non-binary people. Um, We're trying to use words to describe ourselves and our attraction, whether romantic or sexual, um, to people when the words aren't up to par. You know, the words are limiting us. They're limiting the way that we can think. If you are a person who is attracted, like you would describe yourself as a lesbian, for example, but you're attracted to a non-binary person, regardless of what sex that person was assigned at birth, you can still be a lesbian. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's my that's my feeling. Like, I think you get to... You get to- choose yeah like, you, that's you that's a you thing you can you can be like this 
I am still a lesbian. Yeah, pick the word that defines you. You just know? like I think. I mean, I don't. I'm obviously straight. Therefore, I don't have a lot to say on this. But <laughs> I feel like there's a common discussion between pan and bi. Right. Right. So like people, I often see choose to use one or the other. Right. Yeah, and, and like I describe myself as bisexual. I deliberately do not describe myself as pansexual. I don't have any judgment for people who do, unless they're the kind of people. Back in my day. Unless they're the kind of people who say that, well, if you're bisexual, that means you're transphobic. And I'm like, no. <laughs> just, I, just no on that, friend. Um, so my point here is that I, and this is a bit outside of the scope of the episode, but if I was going to talk about heterosexual desire toward non-binary people, then I should also talk about homosexual, homosexual desire. I'm sorry to use these very clinical terms, but homosexual desire toward non-binary people. The the point that I want to get across here is that like these terms exist outside of individual experience and you can use whatever word feels right to you. You know, like, nobody gets to be the fucking attraction police. It doesn't invalidate. People try, though. Yeah. It, I know this kind of thing gets thorny for people, too. Um, but I feel like if you're if you're a lesbian and that label feels good and right to you and you also experience attraction toward non-binary people, more power to you. You know, <laughs> like it doesn't I don't think it needs to be the source of like an existential crisis or you suddenly have to call yourself bi or pan if those labels like if those labels don't fit for you don't use them i think would the would the questioning come in then if you're attracted to say a trans or a non-binary person who at birth was born female and you see them as female that would that would be the issue that would be an issue exactly exactly that 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 amounts to the same thing as with jackson Mm -hmm. because jackson's issue is that he is not seeing cal as a non-binary person he is seeing cal as a woman I think it's, I understand why people were upset that he did that, like that that was the story that he had. But I think it's such an honest story because yeah. it's, it was, especially since for what all we know, Cal has, or um, Jackson has not experienced anybody who is non-binary. Therefore, he's never had to have that really question. Right. I think it's really important to have this kind of story. The, the issue I think with Cal is, has nothing to do with Jackson and has everything to do with the fact that Cal primarily exists for Jackson to have this crisis about. Mm-hmm. Um, if Cal gets their own story in season four and gets to be a little more of a character on their own, independent of Jackson, um, that's great. I'm excited for that. Uh, I, but I think that that the nuance happening in that conversation with Jackson, not seeing Cal as non-binary and instead being like, I respect their pronouns. That's good enough. Mm -hmm. Like he doesn't say that, but that's the implication. And he does respect it. Right. Yeah, he does. Yeah. But that's, but there's, it goes further than that. Yeah, it's it's not the same. <laughs> it's a fucking bare minimum. Yeah, it's not the same as uh, as recognizing their life and their body and yeah. so on as uniquely non-binary. It's different. Therefore, it's hard. Yeah, and I think that that's important to show because not everybody, you know, straight people, for example, can respect pronouns and never really think about a person as non-binary. Yeah. You know? Like... Especially if they, like, I I see a lot more often now people who are non-binary who, if you were to just look at them, you would assume that they are female or male because they dress that way. Right. But that doesn't mean that they are that either that. So I think that gets even harder now as we see that more often of, like, oh, I respect your pronouns, but I always see you as 
a woman in my head because you dress that way. Right. There's a lot of like uh, non-binary people don't owe you androgyny. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I mean, what even is androgyny? Androgyny so often looks masculine. Yes. Um, and that's just not that's not it you know um it's very interesting yeah so my point here basically was that like i talked primarily about heterosexual desire but for gay people who are attracted primarily or exclusively to one gender um i don't think it's in i don't think that it suddenly makes you straight or bisexual or pansexual or whatever to have an attraction to a non-binary person yeah there's so much nuance to this conversation that doesn't have to be as exclusive as I think a lot of like social media and stuff wants it to be. Yeah. Basically my my point as it so often is is that there's a lot more nuance to this conversation than words like the words that we use will allow us to have. So if you are a person who like experiences attraction to people that like doesn't necessarily jive with the existing categories of homo and heterosexual that is okay you feel about yourself however you feel about yourself your words are trying to describe a phenomenon that we that already existed sometimes we don't yet have the words to describe how reality really is Mm -hmm. the dictionary is always chasing the true experience right a word doesn't really get at the truth of it and now we're into philosophy and I have to stop before we go too deep and can't recover but that was the point yeah um so my my point here is i disagree <laughs> with people uh, and people who thought that cal like the relationship was um flawed or something like that uh, yeah i thought it was really good i thought it was one of us i mean made me think so maybe that's why i felt like it was really good but it was one of the things that stood out to me and still sticks with me from the show Mm -hmm. uh, that that questioning that conversation what does it mean and it really made me it was one of the things that like helped my journey to understand gender yeah and i think you know like like we were talking about earlier the the fact that like you don't have to necessarily identify with the character to identify with some Mm -hmm. part of their story like I would say Jackson is probably not the character who's most similar to you. No. On the show. Mm -mm, Definitely not. (laughs) But you can still like understand that perspective and it forces you to consider it because like there is that part of him that, Mm -hmm. that does connect to you. Um, so yeah, I thought it was, I really liked it. It's such a good show and I'm so glad. I'm so, I knew you would love it. Mm -hmm. I knew it. I just fucking knew it. And I was like, it's because you knew I would identify with Otis. No, it's because I thought that you would really love Amy and Maeve. I do. I actually, I love everybody on the show. Yeah, that's the thing is everyone's great. But I, I, Amy, I think is my favorite. Just her, her like story and she makes the cupcakes mm-hmm. and I just love her. Yeah. She's just head empty, but not. Yeah. I came away with Adam as my son. You're wild. I love him. He's a, he's a sweet baby I would have boy. never guessed that one. Sweet baby boy with one brain cell. Oh, that's given some credit. That's given him some credit. Yeah. He's there's like a Tumblr post or something that's like this character has one of those clapping monkeys for brains and every time it hits a symbol he has a thought. It wasn't about Adam. But it is. But it is about Adam. <laughs> um yeah, I love Adam. Yeah, um so good. Do you have anything else to say about sex education? No, I'm fine. I'm 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 happy that we finally got to talk about it. It's been like what a month. Oh my god, yeah. I finished this outline a hundred years ago. 
but it was nice i could i could leisurely look at it mm-hmm. um so that's it for this episode this episode that's i don't know why i talk like that um why not find us online at fakeygirlscast.com which has all of our previous episodes as well as our episode transcripts we have transcripts up as of recording which is not the same as when you're listening to this um we have episodes up or re- transcripts up for a couple of i can't even remember now <laughs> sorry <laughs> never mind just just just, just keep look. going just, just look yeah, at just it. go look um Thank you to Emily June for helping with the transcription project. Uh, Emily works on the new episodes. I very, 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 very slowly work on the old episodes. <laughs> um, you can also, uh, if you want to join in the Discord, shoot me an email. Contact at fakeeatgirlscast.com. You can get in there and talk about all kinds of stuff. All kinds of stuff. What are we talking about? I don't uh, know. I think the last conversation was about the new Lord of the Rings show, mm. which is supposed to be really good. Yeah, I haven't seen I'm it. I'm watching the new Game of Thrones show, which is spectacular. Mm. I'm only like mostly through season or episode three, mm. but I sure do like it. Yeah, I haven't seen it. I don't watch things. I don't know if you'd like it like that that much, but yeah. um, next time, <laughs> what do I have on this list? Sex education. No, we're not going to talk about it again. Uh, next time we're going to be talking about the Sandman. We're going to be talking about the first two uh, arcs, the Doll's House and Preludes and Nocturnes, as well as the bonus episodes of the show, which cover <laughs> Calliope and Dream of a Thousand Cats. That's wild. They, I mean, it was just a weird. That's weird mm-hmm. that they did that. Um, again i think so many deliberate decisions are made yeah we're also going to be talking about the first season of the show which is now out on netflix after that we're going to be talking about practical magic the book and the movie uh just the first book i know there's more in the series but we're only going to talk about the first one after that we're going to be talking about daria which is a i'm so excited commission i've never seen daria i can't remember much of it but i do remember it like it's good yeah I'm, i'm excited to watch it uh, and then after that, the current leader in the poll is Russian Doll. Let's keep it that way. I want to rewatch. rewatch what are the Doll. other ones? Uh, Jaws, Breaking Dawn, and Magic Mike XXL. <laughs> sure do got an array of things. Yeah, yeah, truly. Um, and that's it. All right. Catch you on the flip side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.